join me in prayer we continue to pray together. Oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. You are the strong defender of our weary heart, the gracious savior of our ruined life. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the strong and sturdy refuge that we have in you. Thank you for the anchor for our souls that is you. So Lord, I pray for my friends who are here today who are weary, who are tired, who are worn out. I pray that you would give them rest for their souls. I pray that you'd give us an urgency to run to the strong tower, to run to the refuge, to you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, that it's true, that that prayer of confession we prayed is a reality, that you take our brokenness, our sin, our shame, and you place it on the Savior, you place it on Jesus, and you place His righteousness and purity on us. What an awesome gospel this is, that we believe, that we embrace, that we live in, and so Lord, In the good of the gospel, teach us your word. Help us to see the truth of your word from the book of Ecclesiastes. Help us to not be like the people in Jeremiah 2 who forsook the fountain of living waters for broken, brackish, dirty cisterns. But Lord, help us to turn away from all of the things that do not satisfy and help us to turn to you. Lord, let repentance reign upon us today as we turn away from all of the false idols and gods that we run to for meaning and purpose. And let us turn wholeheartedly to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the Savior of our weary hearts, the Savior of our ruined lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray that you'd help us to understand it now, to apply it to our lives. Lord, help me to preach your word to your people for your glory in this moment. I pray you'd help me do that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. So good to see you, church family. I thank God for you, all that he's doing among us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes is just after Psalms and Proverbs in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, you might be able to find a pew Bible in the rack in front of you. If you do grab one of those black hardback Bibles, Ecclesiastes 1 is on page 553. We started a couple weeks ago a series, passage by passage, through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to look at a pretty large chunk today, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 2, verse 26. So follow along as I read God's Word over us. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. 
and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in days to come, all will have long been forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair because over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is toiled with skill, with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity. And a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person 
and that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the unchanging God. May God write its truth on our hearts. Well, even though it pains me to admit this in public, the greatest quarterback of all time is Tom Brady. Football fans either love him or hate him, but no one can argue with what Tom Brady has achieved. He has won seven Super Bowls and owns a ton of significant records. Needless to say, he is a very wealthy and successful individual. By every human standard, he literally has it all. Well, a few years back, when he only had three Super Bowl rings, he did an interview with 60 Minutes that has had a lasting impact on me, and, and he made a very intriguing comment. This is what he said. He said, man, I'm making more money now than I thought I could ever make playing football. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say to me, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, and what else is there for me? The interviewer was intrigued by Brady's comment, and so he pressed Brady even further and said, well, what's the answer? Tom Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. You see, Tom Brady admitted and acknowledged what many famous and rich and successful people know. There's got to be more. There's got to be more than just chasing after rings and fame and money and pleasure. And that's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes found out way before Tom Brady did. As we're going to see in this passage, the preacher experienced the best of everything this life has to offer. And he came to the conclusion, there has to be more. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. So here's the main point of this passage. This passage is saying to us, meaning and fulfillment in life does not come from chasing the things of this world, but from receiving every moment as a gift from a gracious God. Meaning and fulfillment in life does not come from chasing the things of this world, but from receiving every moment as a gift from a gracious God. So what Solomon does in this passage is he invites us to walk in his shoes. He was the king. He had everything, and He had the best of everything there is. And He wants to show us the conclusion. 
He wants to show us the conclusion of it all. That none of it satisfies. None of it can hold the weight and meaning, the weight of meaning and fulfillment in this life. It is all, he says, as meaningless as chasing after the wind. And then for the first time in this book, for the first time in this book, the preacher shows us where we can find lasting enjoyment and meaning in God Himself. And so two main points in this passage. We're going to look at both of these. First, trying to find meaning in this world is like chasing the wind. And number two, God is the only one who can give true enjoyment. So first, number one, trying to find meaning in this world is like chasing the wind. So the majority of this passage details the preacher's pursuit to find meaning and purpose in the things of this world. He looked around every corner. He explored all the alleys of pleasure of this world only to find that they are all dead ends. It is as if the preacher jumped off all the high dives in the world only to find that none of the pools had water in them. And he stumbles before us, broken and bruised, to tell us not to jump off of these same high dives looking for meaning and lasting fulfillment. There is no water in the pools of this world. This world cannot deliver on its promise of meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction. In fact, look at the summary that Solomon gives in chapter 1 verse 14. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, that is, pay attention to this. Behold, all is vanity. All is empty. All is futile. And a striving after wind. And so I count 11 different places that the preacher tried to find meaning and fulfillment. Eleven different high dives he jumped off of trying to find meaning only to find that the pools lacked water. Number one, he looked at wisdom and learning. The first place he looked was wisdom and learning. So the first stop that the preacher made on his search to find himself, on his search to, to find meaning and fulfillment was the university. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Look at verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he says, I was the first in my class in college. I earned all of the degrees. I became very wise. In fact, 1 Kings 4 says that Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. But notice what he found to be true after experiencing everything that wisdom and knowledge could get him. Look at verses 17 and 18. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. Why? Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. See, Solomon teaches us that with wisdom comes vexation, that is, frustration 
and increased knowledge only leads to increased sorrow. We know this to be true, don't we? The more we perceive, the more we know, the more we're troubled by how things really are. Right? We even have a saying that captures this reality. We say, ignorance is bliss, don't we? Right? When you know what is going on in the world, when you have knowledge and insight and perception into the brokenness that's around us, it vexes us. It causes sorrow. When you don't know what's going on in the world, when you're naive to it all, you don't care. But when you know you're deeply troubled by what is, have you ever said to a, a, a new piece of information that you got, have you ever said something like, I wish I didn't know that? Now, we say that, right? Because knowledge increases burden, right? We are responsible for what we know. Now, just to be clear, the preacher doesn't say there's no value in wisdom. Of course not. Quite the contrary. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says there's more to gain in wisdom than in folly. At least the wise person has some light to walk in. I'd rather be wise than a fool. However, the wise person dies just like the fool. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says that the same event, that is death, happens to both. Wisdom cannot stave off death and it cannot satisfy the deepest aching of our souls. Learning and education to our culture promise control over the world. The world says if you can just get enough knowledge, if you can just be smart enough, you'll have control over your destiny. But the preacher says that control is an illusion. The pursuit of it is like playing a game of chase with the wind. It's like playing a game of tag with the wind. It is fruitless to satisfy. You will not find meaning in life, in education, or in learning. And so don't put your hope in wisdom and knowledge of this world. It will leave you bankrupt in the end. The second place he looked for meaning and satisfaction is in laughter. Is in laughter. The second stop the preacher makes is to the comedy club. As the king, he probably had all kind of entertainers and court jesters to keep him distracted with laughter. But look what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Have you ever wondered why comedians tend to have the saddest personal lives? Consider the late Robin Williams. He spent his days making everyone laugh. But he himself was addicted to drugs, accused multiple times of sexual misconduct. He was depressed, he was lonely, and in the end, he took his own life. To look to laughter to fulfill you is madness, the preacher says. See, laughter is a precious gift from God. Laughter is a precious gift from God. But it is an empty God to turn to, to find refuge in. It will leave you unsatisfied at every turn. Third, the preacher tried alcohol. Alcohol. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And so the preacher now goes to the bar and waste away in Margaritaville. 
He indulges in the best drinks in hopes of experiencing the cheering effects of alcohol. How many people have tried to drown away their sorrows or improve their mood through the use of alcohol or some other substance? The preacher says you will find no satisfaction there. We know this. We know this to be true by experience. As the Proverbs say, wine is a mocker. It cannot satisfy you and it leaves you empty and broken when you try to find refuge and meaning and purpose in it. Fourth, he tried houses and gardens. Houses and gardens. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Notice what he says. He says, I made great works. And notice the plural in this passage. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. This sounds like paradise, doesn't it? Houses and gardens and fruit trees and forests that are all yours, that are all blossoming and budding. This sounds like paradise. The preacher looked to to HGTV. He got Joanna Gaines to remodel his house. He put shiplap everywhere. But he says it did not satisfy his soul. It did not satisfy his soul. He looked to nature. He created beautiful gardens complete with their own automatic sprinkler systems. And yet, that did not fulfill his heart. Friends, nature is wonderful, beauty is awesome, but it is a sorry God to worship. Fifth, he tried food. The preacher went to the all-you-can-eat buffet trying to satisfy the ache in his soul. Now, food isn't specifically mentioned in this list, but I think it's implied in his comment about all kinds of fruit trees in verse 5. The king had the most delicious food to indulge in. He had world-class chefs to prepare the food for him. But what did it do? It just left him hungry for more. Six, he had servants. He had servants. Chapter 2, verse 7 says the preacher had both male and female slaves. Not only that, not only did he have male and female slaves, but he says he had multiple generations of slaves to serve his every need. Anything he wanted, he had immediately. Many people dream about having this kind of life. Dream about having servants to do all of your cooking and cleaning and laundry and yard work. Solomon is describing a life of leisure here that he says was just a dead end. It did not satisfy his soul. Seventh, he tried money and possessions. Here's a big one. Look at verses 2, 7, and 8. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Solomon describes the possessions of herds and flocks and gold and silver. He had an abundance of all of these possessions and money. He literally had Jeff Bezos kind of money. He could afford anything he set his eyes on. He says it was more than anyone who had ever come before him. Money fixes everything, right? Money fixes everything. That's what the world says. If you could just win the lottery, if you could just get that promotion at work, if you could just figure out the next big investment. But the preacher's conclusion about wealth is that it is a chasing after the wind. It did not provide the meaning 
and purpose he was searching for because the human heart is never satisfied with more stuff. The more we get, the more we want. Money and possessions did not satisfy him. Eighth, he tried music. Then Solomon's next stop was the music industry. He went to all the happening concerts. Notice the middle of chapter 2, verse 8 says that he gathered male and female singers. He wasn't content with canned music coming over speakers. He didn't just have Pandora and Spotify. He had live musicians and singers at his parties. He had people singing to him wherever he went. And he says that was just a chasing after the wind. Ninth, he tried sex. Sex, the end of chapter 2, verse 8, says that he had many concubines. The delight of the sons of men. And so Solomon experienced all the sex he could handle. 1 Kings 11 says Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, it's important to note that often the Bible is just reporting on what happened. But just because it's reporting what happened doesn't mean that it's endorsing Solomon's behavior. In fact, we learned that later on in Solomon's life, it was these very wives that led him astray from the Lord. The bedroom did not satisfy the preacher. There weren't enough pretty women in the whole world to fill the, soul, the hole in his soul. Tenth, he tried success and affirmation and status with others. Chapter 2, verse 9 describes the kind of status that Solomon enjoyed. He was greater than anyone else. He was the goat. He had all the success and affirmation that we could ever even imagine. And that did not give him meaning and purpose. I think this one should hit home for us because this is what we all long for. We all long for the affirmation of the world. We all long for that status that will get us liked by others. And Solomon says, I was the greatest, and that gave me nothing but vanity. Finally, number 11, he tried work. He tried work. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So after working hard and being skillful with his hands and devoting himself to doing a good job, he says the reward that he got for his hard work, look at it, chapter 2, verse 18. He says, I hated all my toll in which I toll under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master for all of which I told and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is told with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart from which he tolls beneath the sun? Look at verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his heart is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. What does Solomon say hard work will get you? It will get you a heart full of sorrow and vexation, and it will get you sleepless nights. 
If you ask most people how they're doing today, most people will answer that question by saying either tired or busy. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Most people say I'm tired or I'm busy, which I think is a clear indication that our work has not provided what our hearts long for. Our work has not satisfied us in the way that we desire it to. So this passage can be really depressing. This passage can be really depressing. Here's a man who had access to more pleasures and treasures than we can even dream of getting. And he is telling us that they are meaningless to satisfy us. He has drained every glass of pleasure that he could find. And what did he gain from it all? It was a mere chasing after the wind. He was just as broken as he was before he experienced all of these things. Friends, please hear me. Please hear me. This world cannot satisfy you. This world cannot satisfy you. There is no meaning to be found in the pleasures of this world. See, when I read this passage, I can't help but think that the preacher was trying to recreate his own Garden of Eden in these pursuits. He's trying to go back to when things were perfect, when things were flawless, with no sin. He's trying to get back to that time when the world was unaffected by sin. But he could not. He could not recreate it. So church family, what is your if only that you are chasing? What's it for you? If only I had this. If only this, then I would be fulfilled. Like if only I could have that promotion at work. If only I could have that bigger house. If only I could have that dream job. If only I could have that particular pleasure. The preacher tried it all, and he said it's bankrupt to satisfy. And even if a pleasure gives meaning for a short time, he says death just undoes it all. The wise and the fool meet the same fate. We can't take it with us. We have to leave it to someone else, and who knows what they'll do with it. It's all temporary. It's all fleeting. And so think about this analogy, this illustration of chasing the wind. How foolish would it be to walk out your front door and say, what am I going to do today? I think I'm just going to chase the wind today. I'm, I'm going to just grab the wind and I'm going to wrestle it down and I'm going, to just, I'm going to just capture it. It's an image that we recognize is all madness. And yet that's what we do day in and day out when we look to this world for anything of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And so at the end of chapter 2, for the first time in this book, the preacher calls our attention to God. He says, number two, God is the only one who can give true enjoyment. God is the only one who can give true enjoyment. So up until chapter 2, verse 24, the preacher has viewed the world only through the lens of self. The Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I have dominated the landscape. In fact, go back and read chapters 1 through 2 and underline all the me, myself, and I's. It is, it is completely saturated with it. The preacher sought to find meaning in this world under the sun apart from the grace of God, and he has come up empty. 
He could not study hard enough or work hard enough or build enough beautiful houses and gardens or indulge in enough pleasures for himself. And so he teaches us that only in surrendering ourselves to our gracious God can we find any enjoyment or meaning in this life. Here's what he says to us. He says the good life is the one centered on God, not on self. Solomon teaches what Augustine prayed in his confessions. Augustine prayed, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's what this entire book is teaching. That all of us were made for God. We were made for His pleasure. We were made with eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3 would say. God has put that there. That's who we are. That's why your soul is so restless. Because you were made for another world. You were made for a king. You were made for God. And your heart is going to be restless. It's going to be empty until you find your rest in God. Notice what the preacher says in chapter 2, verse 24. He says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Now, when he says there's nothing better for a person, I don't think he's teaching that this is the highest virtue of all. Clearly, the best thing for any person is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to all of His commands. But rather, I think what the preacher is saying here is the best we can do with the pleasures of this life under the sun. So listen, he's not saying... All these pleasures are bankrupt, and so completely forget about them. No, that's not what he's saying. God has created many of these pleasures that he listed for us, for our enjoyment. But what he's saying is, the best we can do with the pleasures of this life, the best we can do with all of these gifts that God has given, is to enjoy them. Remember our ice cream cone illustration from last week? You can't hold on to it. You can't save an ice cream cone. All you can do is enjoy it in the moment. Given the fleeting nature of everything in this world, this is what we can do. Enjoy life and the good gifts that God gives to us. So his answer to what to do with the things under the sun is to enjoy them as a gift from God's gracious hand. This enjoyment is evidently very different than the kind of enjoyment that he's been describing in the rest of this passage, right? That was an enjoyment, that was an attempt at enjoyment or to find meaning in those things of the world. That was a very different thing. That was a chasing after those things to fulfill him. But this is an enjoyment that fears God and that receives these gifts as as a gift of grace from a generous God. Friends, this life is hard. This life is futile and it is empty. All things are full of weariness is what the preacher said in chapter 1. However, as 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, God has provided all things for our enjoyment. In His grace, God has given us good things that He wants us to enjoy in this life. God wants us to enjoy food and drink and work and pleasure. The preacher says these things, notice, are from the hand of God. Who's the one who gives these gifts? They're from God. 
They're from God not so that we would find meaning and fulfillment and purpose in them. They're from God so that we would enjoy Him and enjoy His grace. See, the difference is the recognition that these gifts are not God. That is, they're not given to us to find meaning and fulfillment. Only God can do that. These gifts are supposed to help us trust God, not trust the gifts. Notice the revolutionary statement in verse 25. Chapter 2, verse 25. He's, after saying, these things are from the hand of God, he says, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? See, verse 25 teaches that God is the one who not only gives the gifts to enjoy, but what else does God do? He gives, they're from His hand, verse 24, but what does verse 25 say? He does. He gives us the ability to enjoy them. See, apart from God, we cannot even enjoy His good gifts. We can't enjoy rightly good food or drink or gardens or knowledge or sex or, or music or money and possessions. We can't even enjoy them apart from the ability that He gives. In common grace in creation, God gives good things to enjoy. His world is full of good things. But God also gives special grace to actually enjoy those good things as a gift from Him. He gives there is no true enjoyment apart from Him giving that true enjoyment to us. There's no true enjoyment of the things of this world apart from God. Some of us have been taught or have gotten the mistaken notion that the Christian life is devoid of pleasure and happiness. Sadly, Christians often have this reputation of being killjoys, saying, don't do this, stay away from that. But friends, that's the farthest thing of how we should be characterized. We who have been redeemed by Jesus should be enjoying God's gifts to the max. Since, since God has given them to us, since He gives us the ability to, to enjoy them, we enjoy Him, we please Him when we enjoy His good gifts. Friends, God has put boundaries in place to help us enjoy these good things, but inside of these boundaries we should be finding maximum enjoyment. I agree with C.S. Lewis who once said that our problem is not that we desire too much, but rather that we desire too little. We are content with broken pleasures when lasting pleasures are offered to us in Jesus. Listen, friends, when Jesus saves us from our sin, He awakens us so that we can taste delicious food as a gift from Him. When Jesus redeems us, He stirs us to see a truly epic sunset as a gift from Him. When Jesus reconciles us to Himself, He implants in us the ability to enjoy music or sex as a good gift from Him in the context of Christian marriage. When Jesus frees us from our sin, He gives us the capacity to enjoy art and nature and sports and study and design and leisure and possessions for what they truly are. What a Savior we have. What a Savior who doesn't just save us from our sin, which, which would be an amazing gift of His grace. That's all that it was. But He not only saves us by His grace, but He, in His grace, gives us good things to enjoy. Good things that please Him when we enjoy. 
Charles Simeon stated the point of this passage like this. He said, there are but two lessons for the Christian to learn. The one is to enjoy God in everything. The other is to enjoy everything in God. To enjoy God in everything, but to enjoy everything in God. Now, if I've lost you, if you're ready for this sermon just to be over, let me summarize quickly for you. Nothing in this world was designed to give us meaning and fulfillment. You can jump off all the high dives of this world, but there is no water in the pool to satisfy. If you pursue wisdom and pleasure and toil of this world, it will leave you like Tom Brady saying in frustration, there's got to be more than this. However, when we trust and fear God, we find our meaning and fulfillment in Him. And when we trust in Jesus, we are given the ability to truly enjoy the simple pleasures of life as gifts of His grace. We are sinners. We deserve nothing from God. We deserve to be miserable and lonely for all eternity. We deserve judgment and we deserve condemnation. But our God is a gracious giver. He allows us to enjoy His creation as an expression of our trust in Him. Let me close with these four application thoughts really quickly. Number one, don't be so arrogant to think that you can pursue the same pleasures the preacher tried and get a different result. See, there's an arrogance that comes to this text and says, man, if you gave me what he had, I'd know how to really make the most of it. Like, clearly, he didn't know what he was doing. Don't think that. You will find it as meaningless as chasing after the wind. Number two, don't forget your own death. Don't forget your own death. You will die. I will die. And when we die, all of the stuff we've accumulated, all the stuff we have worked so hard to get will just be passed along to someone else. And who knows what they will do with it. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live with the end in mind. The certainty of our death should help us to enjoy each day as a gift from God. After all, we know this to be true. Even as morbid as it sounds, this could be your last day. Enjoy it. This is why God has given it to you. Don't forget your own death. Third, don't forget to enjoy life right now. Don't forget to enjoy life right now. Don't be so busy at work that you can't get on the floor and play with your kids. Don't be so busy pursuing acceptance with others that you forget to enjoy the sunset and smell the roses. Don't be so caught up in amassing wealth that you can no longer enjoy delicious food. Find enjoyment every day. After all, that is the best thing you can do with this world and its pleasures. And fourth and finally, don't forget your Savior. Don't forget your Savior. The preacher's language here of one who pleases God in verse 26 reminds us that none of us have pleased God. None of us can say we are in that category of pleasing God. Jesus is the only one who has ever pleased the Father. And so if we ever have hope of being accepted by God, if we ever have hope of enjoying God's world, it will only be through trusting Jesus Christ. Listen, trusting Jesus is not chasing after wind. And so let's trust Him now. Lord Jesus, we trust You. We thank You that You 
have redeemed us from our sin. And we thank You that You have given us all things to enjoy. And so, Lord, would You help us to be enjoyers? Enjoyers not in in terms of trying to find meaning and purpose, refuge in the things of this world, but enjoyers in terms of enjoying You through the gifts that You give to us. Oh God, I pray that we would never be known as a people who are curmudgeonly, that we would never be known as a people who, who are just all about don't do this and don't do that. But oh God, we would be people who are full of joy and enjoyment so that this world would see You and see Your generosity and see Your grace. Oh God, I pray for those in this room who've never trusted You, who are still seeking after the things of this world. I pray You'd show them today that it's all bankrupt. It's all a chasing after wind. And they would stop, that You would stop them, and You would open their eyes to see King Jesus. And I pray You'd do this for the glory of Your name. Amen and amen.